This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Topo Athletic. Topo Athletic is a gimmick-free athletic footwear company delivering solutions for healthier, more natural movement patterns. Topo Athletic makes shoes for running, fitness, and recovery, all featuring the roomy toe box and iconic fit. Get 10% off your first pair by using promo code MANLINESS at topoathletic.com or go to topoathletic.com slash manliness to get that 10% discount. Do your body a favor and visit Topo Athletic to join the thousands of people who have done their research. That's topoathletic.com slash manliness or use promo code manliness to get 10% off your first pair of shoes. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. How do you make the biggest decisions you face, the ones that have significant consequences and can change your life? Choices like whether to get married, move, attend a certain college, take a particular job, and so on. If you're like most people, you just kind of wing it and maybe draw up a basic pros and cons list. My guest today has studied the latest research in decision-making theory and has formulated a better approach. His name is Steven Johnson, and his latest book is Farsighted, How to Make the Decisions that Matter the Most. And today on the show, he walks us through how to move beyond listing pros and cons to using a more effective three-step decision-making process. We begin our conversation discussing how most people make decisions and how it hasn't changed much in hundreds of years. Stephen then walks us through the phases of a better decision-making methodology, including developing a more creative map of the possibilities before you, accurately predicting the outcomes of those options, and questioning the narratives you have about your choices. Stephen then makes the case that reading novels and watching quality television shows can be a great way to train our brains in the skill of decision-making. And we end our conversation discussing what the raid on Osama bin Laden can teach us about making good decisions. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash farsighted. Stephen joins you now via clearcast.io. Stephen Johnson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I'm delighted to be here. So you got a new book out, Farsighted, How We Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. Curious, how did you get started thinking about decision-making or the philosophy and science of decision-making. You've written all about like, you know, where ideas come from, this idea of emergence, how we, innovations that got us to where we are now. What got you thinking about decision-making? You know, this project I have been working on for a really long time. It's actually the longest kind of incubation period of any of my books, which is maybe appropriate for a book that in some ways is about long-term thinking and decision-making. But I started actually working on it originally right after my book, Where Good Ideas Come From, came out about the patterns of innovation. I think I started taking notes on it in 2011 or something like that. And it was really sparked by two things. One, a story from history and, and one, a story from my own personal life. The story from history is this, in Where Good Ideas Come From, I had a whole long riff about Darwin and his notebooks. And, you know, there are these incredible personal notebooks that Darwin maintained, particularly during the 1830s, late 1830s, as he was developing the theory of evolution. And it's a beautiful case study in watching a mind kind of come up with a radical new idea. And that's why I'd written about it. But I knew from that research that there's a kind of a comical moment in those notebooks where Darwin takes up two facing pages of his notebooks, kind of interrupts his scientific musings and starts wrestling with another question, which is a little bit more intimate, which is, should he get married? And he basically creates this pros and cons list of, of you know, pro-marriage and, and anti-marriage. And it 
it's kind of comical and, and it's, it, it's, it's funny to read it now because some of them are kind of like, well, I, if I get married, I might have children. But on then on the other hand, he says, I might have to give up the clever conversation of men in clubs, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> but I thought about it, it was like, you know, the pros and cons list is the one technique that most of us actually learn in, in adjudicating a complicated choice in our lives. And. Here it was, you know, almost 100, that was 1837, 1838 when he was doing that. And so here we are, you know, 150 years later, and we're still using the same technique. <laughs> and so I was like, surely there must be, you know, some interesting science and research into how to make complicated decisions. And maybe there are better tools than just making a pros and cons list. And the, the personal story was right at that point in my life, I was wrestling with my wife with this equally complex choice, which is we were, I, I had, as my kind of version of a midlife crisis, I had gotten obsessed with the idea that we should move to the West Coast. We'd lived in New York our entire adult lives, and I was getting sick of winter and needed more nature in my life. So I really wanted to move to, you know, the Bay Area. And 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 I I tried to persuade my wife that we should make this big momentous choice for, for us and for our kids. And she was appalled at this idea. It was not something she wanted to do at all. All her friends were in New York, whatever. And we had this along back and forth. And, and I started thinking about like, you know, how do we make these kinds of, that's a choice that the consequences of which will, you know, reverberate for decades, you know, in, in both our lives and our kids' lives. And how do you make a choice like that? What What's the best approach when the stakes are so high? And so I put those two things together and then I, I figured there would be a really good book to, to write about that. And then, and then I, I kept getting distracted with other projects and I kept taking notes in the background for it and finally, finally put it kind of front and center a couple of years ago. And, and here we are. Well, yeah. As you said in the book, it's an important topic because every day we're making decisions like small ones, but even really big ones that will affect the rest of our lives. Like, where do I go to college? Should I take out a loan? Should I buy a house? What job should I take? And no one really tells you how to go about making these decisions. You just sort of, you sort of wing it um, oftentimes. Sometimes I think you don't even actually make a decision where there should be a decision made, right? I mean, for instance, where do you live, right? I mean, that, that in our case, we had a period of time where we actually put that front and center and said, you know, let's decide what, what, what city, what, what part of the country you know, suburbs versus city, countryside, you know, all that kind of stuff. What country do we want to live in? Like we actively had a decision about that, but I think actually most people don't have a, have a kind of crossroads moment in their life where they really decide where they want to live. It just is something that happens to them, you know, that they, they, they stay at home where they were born or they, you know, stay where they, if they go to college, they stay near their college or they move somewhere kind of accidentally when they're 22 and they get stuck there. And, so some of the most important choices in life we don't even make, <laughs> which is, which is weird. So, so trying to recognize and also trying to differentiate between the choices, as you say, that we do make day in and day out that actually aren't that significant, that don't require the kind of deliberation that I'm talking about in the book and the techniques that I talk about in the book. It's fine to make, you know, what you're having for dinner or even, you know, 99% of the decisions you make at work don't require this much thought. But when you do confront a, a choice that really does have significant long-term consequences, to take time out to do some of the exercises that I talk about in the book, I think is a really healthy thing to do. And you give this great example to start the book off of 
decisions being made that have had lasting consequences, but people weren't really making decisions. They were just doing whatever they thought was the next best thing. And this is the story of Collect Pawn in Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. So I should say the, the, the book is both about personal intimate decisions, like should I get married or should I move to California? And also group decisions, collective decisions, business decisions, but also planning. There's a lot of urban planning in the book, for instance. And that's why I started with this story about Collect Pond. It, it's a crazy story. So there was for many, many years, for, for centuries, for millennia, there, there was a freshwater pond in lower Manhattan, what became Manhattan, which was actually really the only major source of, of drinkable water in lower Manhattan because the East River and the Hudson River are tidal estuaries. So they're very salty. And, the Native Americans who lived there and then the early Dutch settlers, you know, relied on Collect Pond for drinking water. And it was apparently very beautiful. There was a kind of a rocky hillside next to it and, and people would skate on it in the, in the winter. And it was a kind of lovely part of, of early New York life. But, you know, New York being what it was uh, and continues to be, people started, you know, dumping their garbage there and old dead, you know, barnyard animals and the occasional murder victim and some tanneries opened up that started polluting it with chemicals and all that stuff. And so by the 1770s, 1780s, it was a just, you know, a stinking hole, basically, as it was described at the time. And so the, basically the city tried to decide whether, like, maybe we should turn it into a park. But they were like, oh, no one will ever, it's too far north. No one will ever live the, around that place, which was ridiculous because this, this is like, if you know Manhattan, this is, you know, below Canal Street, basically. <laughs> and so they kind of trashed their plans to build a park. And then they basically just decided to fill it in and get rid of the pond. And they built some houses over it, but they'd done a poor job at the landfill and the houses started to kind of decay and all these noxious smells came out and people fled from the neighborhood. And that neighborhood became the legendary Five Points neighborhood, the first kind of famous slum in New York City where Gangs of New York was set and all these things. And it was all because they just kind of didn't know what to do with this beautiful natural resource. And if they had built that park, that would be today one of the great urban parks in the world, right? And, and it probably would have survived for 500 years or longer. This beautiful lake in the middle of lower Manhattan. So you can think of it almost as like a 500 year mistake <laughs> that they made that they failed to, to, to capitalize on this wonderful natural resource. And part of what I'm trying to argue in the book is actually as pessimistic, as pessimistic as we can sometimes be, we wouldn't make that same mistake as cavalierly as we did back in the 1790s, uh, early 1800s. You know, there, we are actually better at kind of planning decisions like that and looking at natural resources in big cities. And we've advanced the art of making those kinds of choices in many ways. And, and, and all of us can learn from the way in which we've advanced that, that art and that science. Well, before we get to some of the advances we've made in decision-making theory, let's talk about sort of the development of that. So you mentioned for most of human history, probably we've been using the pros and cons list, but you also highlight cases of individuals who were getting a little more sophisticated with their decision-making. For example, Benjamin Franklin sort of developed a decision calculus when he was a young man. Yeah, he called it he called it moral algebra, which I which is actually the title of the first chapter, which I think is such a great phrase. But he he basically proposed a pros and cons like list, but he had one correction to it, which is really important, which is he had a, a kind of a rudimentary scheme for what we now call weighting, i.e., giving a weight to each of the values that are, are listed in your pros and cons list. Because the problem with the pros and cons list, if you're just like 
write up a list of pros and write up a list of cons, you know, and whichever one is longer, <laughs> that gives you your answer. That doesn't really work because presumably some of the things on the list are more meaningful to you or more consequential than other things on the list. So think about Darwin's pros and cons list. Having children, presumably, was more important to him than clever conversation of men in clubs, right? That, <laughs> I mean, maybe he really liked this conversation, but I think he, knowing what we know about Darwin, he was actually more interested in the, in the kids. And so when we, when we kind of list the different kind of assets, we, we, we can't have them all have the same magnitude or the same weight, right? We have to have some way of measuring that. Franklin proposed this system where you create your list and then you kind of cross out ones that are equal in weight to you. And, and then you look at the remaining ones, but that actually doesn't, that helps a little bit, but it doesn't really uh, get to the issue. So they're now much more advanced versions in a sense where you give a score to each of the different values that you've ranked and you say, okay, this one is like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, this one's a nine, this one's a two. It's important, but it's not that important. And the other problem with the pros and cons list is it really only works well when you're looking at one option, right? Should I get married or not? But what if you're looking at a choice where there are five options? The, the pros and cons list effectively doesn't scale up to, to, to handle a, a, a choice with, with multiple variables, multiple uh, alternatives. But you can't do that with a weighted scale. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a technique that's <laughs> that I talk about it kind of at the end of the book that's sometimes called a values model or linear, linear values model that is actually used in environmental planning, urban planning in some cases. And it's the kind of thing you actually really build in a spreadsheet. It's funny, you know, sometimes there's some choices in life, like, should I get married, where maybe you don't want to <laughs> create a spreadsheet and sit your... But if you were Darwin, you probably would. <laughs> yeah, sit your prospective right. spouse down and say, look, darling, I've run the numbers here and it looks very <laughs> promising for us. But other decisions I think can be like that, like like where should we live, I think is one of the things. And, and so what you do is like you create, you know, a list of all the different places you might want to live. And then you create a list of the values that are important to you in your life. And then you kind of score each of those values in terms of how important that value is. Like, you know, happiness for, you know, access to nature is more or less important than good schools, et cetera. And then for each of the options you're looking at, you, you, you give it a score for each of those values. You say, Hey, I think, um, you know, if we move to the country, we'll have more access to nature and, you know, much worse restaurants and you score it all out. And then you basically multiply, you know, the, the, weight or magnitude of each value by the score for each option and add it all up and you get, you get an answer. It's not always the, it, for some people, I think that kind of approach is maybe too mathematical for an important life choice. And it's maybe not the last stage of the process, but it's a way of visualizing all the things that are at stake in a complicated choice. And in the book, I call them these kinds of choices. I call them full spectrum choices because they involve so many facets of what it is to be alive, right? I mean, where you live, right? That involves your your economic issues. That involves, you know, the future education of your kids. That involves things like nature and your friends and the your your politics. Like, do you want to live in a sidewalk culture or a car-centric culture? I mean, just all these different elements. And it's just really hard to keep all that kind of coherent in your head. And so creating a kind of matrix or grid like this, and in a sense, kind of running the numbers on it, I think is a, is a really good tool for helping you see it all in, in, in one place. And there's also like with complex, well, with these complex decisions, there are second order and third order consequences that you don't think about, right? With like the collect ponds, like, well, if we throw in the dead animal carcass, 
they don't think, well, the, the water's not going to be drinkable. And then they don't think, well, if the water's not drinkable, we'll have to cover it up. And then if we had to cover it up, then we build houses, but then the houses are going to sink. Like, you don't think about those things typically. You know, this is one of the things that I didn't fully wrestle with when I first came up with the idea for this book that became increasingly important to me as I researched it and, and wrote it, which is that really when you're making a complex long-term decision, whether it's, you know, a civic decision or a personal decision or a business decision, a huge part of it is about predicting the future, right? It's, it, you know, it, uh, this book is like a third of it is about prediction because anytime you're making a choice like that, you're making a prediction. I think if I choose this, that in five years, things will turn out this way. And so I got, it sent me down this whole rabbit hole of like, okay, well, what do we know about prediction? What are, what are the places where people have gotten better at predicting? And there's a lot of great, I mean, like you could write many books have been written in fact about how we predict and how bad in general we are at predicting the future. But as you say, a lot of that prediction process is trying to imagine consequences that don't initially appear to you. There's a great quote, one of my favorite quotes in the book from Thomas Schelling, the Nobel laureate, who, among other things, kind of half invented game theory and other things. He, he has this great quote that more or less is, the, the one thing a person cannot do, however brilliant they are, is write up a list of things that would never occur to them. <laughs> and and I love that because that is in a sense what you're trying to do when you're making a really complicated choice. It's like, okay, I know there's a I know there's a blind spot here. There's something in the future that I'm not anticipating that I'm gonna choose this path and I'm gonna get blindsided by this development down the line. And so part of it is just going through these these exercises to try and see around those blind spots and to get better. You can't no one has a perfect crystal ball, but there are techniques that make people more aware of the alternatives and, and potential consequences than they would just with their initial impression. So you said that we're getting better at decision-making and we'll, we'll talk about some of the ways we've gotten better in some case studies, but like, where, where is this thinking happening? Like, where's the development of these processes happening? Is it interdisciplinary? Is like, is it cross between behavioral science, economics, yeah. game theory, philosophy, what's going on it's, there? It's, well, you know, this is one of the reasons why the topic was so interesting to me because, you know, I do tend to work in a very multidisciplinary way. And part of, part of what I try and do in my books is to show connections between disciplines. You know, they tend to jump around. <laughs> Actually, it's funny when I was a kid, not a kid, when I was in college and I knew that I wanted to write books, I, I used to tell people like, I'm going to write these books that are uh, you know, a jump around from discipline to discipline and no one will know where to put them in the bookstore because they won't fit any category. And then I ended up growing into that person and becoming that kind of author. And I realized now that's a terrible way <laughs> to write books because nobody knows where they're supposed to go in the bookstore and nobody knows where to find them. But it turns out with decision theory, um, it does draw upon all these different different kinds of disciplines. There's a bunch of kind of management theory, right? There's a bunch of, you know, the one place where people are are taught how to make decisions is, is it, sometimes in business school. But there's a lot of research from, you know, psychology and kind of group psychology, some interesting findings from hardcore kind of neuroscience, like about how the brain actually makes decisions. And, and also, you know, philosophy and literature, there's a lot of wonderful kind of probing look kind of analyses of people making decisions that show up in fiction and novels. And I think there's a lot to learn from those kinds of interior portraits of, of other people, even if they're made up, watching somebody else through the lens of a great novel, making a choice is, is a wonderful, it's almost kind of practice for us 
to to re- rehearse the decisions that we actually make in our own lives by reading by reading novels. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. All right, so we've had a few podcasts on the benefits of meditation. If that's something that interests you and you've tried to make a habit of it, but if I had a hard time doing it, you need to check out Headspace because they have hundreds of guided meditation sessions that you can do in just a few minutes a day. Sessions on everything from stress to sleep and studies done on Headspace users. They found that just 10 days of use can reduce stress by 14% and increase happiness by 5%. Also, four weeks of Headspace amongst its users have improved focus by 14%. They have guided exercises to help you add a touch of mindfulness to daily activities like cooking, meditate while you're commuting, eating, and more. While SOS exercises are there for you during any meltdown moments or if you need a mini meditation on busy days, I gave it a go. The meditation sessions are nice. I've tried meditation just like on my own, trying to do like the mindful stuff. It's all, my mind always wanders when it's just there. It's nice to have the guided meditation, just someone there telling you what to do and what to think about. Really easy. And again, you just have to do it it's like five, 10 minutes. It's nothing. You can try this out. If you'd like to start your journey with Headspace, go to headspace.com manliness to get a free month trial. Sign up online at headspace.com slash manliness for a free trial and start meditating today. Also by Squarespace, turn your dream into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. They got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a great looking website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is also simple with Squarespace and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com manliness for your free trial. Offer code manliness to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Yeah, we'll get into that little tactic to make better decisions. But let's talk about sort of broad overview of this process that you found, that you're, you you see happening when groups or individuals are making complex decisions. So this first process, you call it mapping. What does that look like? So, you know, mapping in a way we've, in a sense, begun to touch on, which is the idea of, look, there's so many different variables and values that are at play in a, in a full spectrum decision. So part of your job in this initial stage is is not to is not to try and kind of narrow things down and make your choice like have a have an initial phase where you're just trying to identify as many factors that that could be relevant to this choice all the different kind of planes of existence that you know would be implicated by moving to California or opening up this new branch of your business or whatever it is you're you're weighing but the other key part of this phase that, that most people don't do is to spend time in this opening stage trying to identify other options that you might not have initially considered. And this, this is based on some, some great kind of management theory research by a guy named um, Paul Nutt, who was a scholar of corporate decisions in the, in the kind of 70s, 80s, early 90s. And, and he analyzed hundreds and hundreds of actual real-world decisions that people made and interviewed people extensively about their process or their lack of process as it normally was. <laughs> and, and then he went back and interviewed people to find out, did the decision work out? Like, were they happy with the results in the end? And what he found was that most people did not have an initial mapping phase where they tried to identify other options to, you know, that they could potentially explore. So 
the way Nutt described it is most decisions were what he called whether or not decisions. I should we do this or not? It was just one option on the table, and it was just a binary choice. Those people, in the long run, ended up more likely than not to be unhappy with the outcomes of their choice. But there was a subset of people who actually did add this early kind of mapping phase where they tried to, you know, have a really a kind of a creative kind of brainstorming process where they tried to identify other options. Yeah, we're looking at option A, but let's let's try and identify options B and C and D, and then we'll make our choice. And the folks who did that were more likely than not to be happy with their choice in the end. It's a significant kind of bonus in, in terms of the outcomes by by adding that phase, even if they ended up going with option A, the one that, that they'd originally looked at, because they just they were making a more informed choice. They understood more of the variables by going through this this kind of process. So that's and it's a very simple rule. I mean, not describes it as change your decision from a which a, a whether or not decision to a which one decision, and that it's it's a very elemental kind of idea. But I think that that's a, that's a it's a great exercise to do in this kind of initial mapping phase. So the initial exercise is just trying to get a big, don't eliminate things, don't eliminate options. You're actually trying to grow options, which I think would be counterintuitive because you're like, well, I'm trying to make a decision. I'm trying to narrow things down. But you're telling me the first step is actually make more choices available. Yeah, it's actually, it, it has a lot of overlap with some of the stuff that I've written about innovation. It's a similar process that people talk about when you're trying to be creative, that you have a a, a divergence and a convergence phase. And the divergence phase is you're not trying to narrow down on on the final answer, you're trying to just generate options <laughs> and and come up with lots of ideas, no ideas, too stupid, that kind of mode, and then let you know and f- liberate yourself during that period to contemplate lots of different things and not try and find the answer, and then later on go back and weed through everything and try and figure out what what really is the right choice. Are, are you also in this phase exploring all the possible consequences as well? Or are you just looking at possible decisions? That's really, I mean, this could be a good transition. <laughs> that's that's really the 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 prediction phase, right? So you've identified five top kind of contenders for you know what you might want to do. Let's say you're moving, and so we've identified these five cities that might be interesting uh, as options that we can move to, or or rural areas, whatever. It doesn't have to be cities, right? So then, so then you got to think about like what would happen if we move to each of these five. And, and that's where you're really moving into a prediction stage where you're kind of ana- analyzing like what really will be the consequences of this path versus this path versus this path. And so that's the, in, in my book, I kind of shift, there's, there's a shift from mapping to predicting at that point. And once you get to predicting, you're effectively in a kind of a storytelling mode. It's a very narrative process. It's interesting. And in a way, it's a very creative process because you're trying to, imagine these, you're trying to make a list of things that would never occur to you, as Thomas Schelling put it. You're trying to imagine consequences that might not occur to you originally. And and there, there are a bunch of useful exercises here. I mean, this is where you draw upon some of the techniques that have sometimes been called scenario planning, right? Kind of a corporate technique where you bring in people to look at the next five years of your market, say, and or the world that you're selling your products in. And the important thing is that you tell multiple stories in this phase. All of us make predictions when we get excited about something. Like when I was excited to move to California, I had this beautiful story of like, we will take hikes in the redwoods <laughs> every day. The children will get outdoorsy and they'll never play video games again. And, you know, that kind of feeling. So we always make these predictions, but the point is to challenge them, right? Because you're, 
whatever prediction you have is somewhere wrong and it's probably too optimistic if you're excited about this and it's probably too negative if you're not excited about it and and so what scenario planners do is they tell multiple stories so that we can kind of imagine multiple outcomes and one kind of shorthand way to do this which i think is pretty cool is you're facing a choice tell three stories about you know the option you're looking at one where things get better one where things get worse and one where things get weird and i and i think there's something like the the exercise of trying to imagine what the weird scenario would be even if again even if it doesn't come to pass it forces you to kind of get outside of your expectations and to challenge your assumptions and to and to perceive new possible futures that you might not have otherwise imagined and I imagine the the mapping and predicting steps, like they're not discrete, like they're probably going on all at the same time. Like you mapped, then you start doing the prediction stuff, doing some, the storytelling or red teaming, for example, in the military where you kind of play this out, uh, simulating it. Then you like actually start seeing new stuff pop up that you otherwise wouldn't have seen during the initial mapping phase. Yeah, I think there is an inevitable kind of bleeding back and forth. But I think trying to keep yourself in that framework in general, where you're like going through the, it, it also, a lot of this depends on your kind of temperament and your thinking style, right? Some people are very organized and they really want to have the, the, the phases. Some people are more creative and the lines are going to be blurrier. It's also another kind of group of people that actually I didn't really address in the book, but it's come up a lot in kind of book tour conversations, which always happens with a book. There's something you've, something in your blind spot that you didn't see when you're writing, but, but people who are, um, who suffer from the kind of opposite problem who are, who spend too much time deliberating generally in the book and making the argument for slowing down and trying to see all the different variables. But there is this class of people who get paralyzed because they just want to, you know, overthink everything. And for those people, I think actually the phases are really nice because you can kind of use them as a way of delineating or demarcating basically stages in making the choice. Like, okay, look, I'm going to spend a week mapping this thing and I'm going to spend a week predicting this thing. And then I'm going to spend the last week actually making the decision. And then I'm going to be done with it. And having that clarity to the pro, like having a distinct process with kind of markers over time, I think can really help people like that who tend to get just stuck over overthinking everything. So when you're making the prediction, like what are you looking for? Are you just looking for like things that will are more likely to happen based on all the scenarios you run, the storytelling you run, or you just, I mean, because like you have to use those predictions to ultimately make that decision, right? Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that's really, the human beings are really bad at. Actually, human beings are, there's a great line from um, Amos Tversky, who, you know, did all the work that led to Kahneman's famous Thinking Fast and Slow book. And he has a line about humans that, he says, humans of probability that human beings basically have three settings for probability. It, it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. And maybe. And that's like, that's all we can do. And so trying to kind of really imagine like thinking rigorously about like, okay, what is the likelihood that, that, that this comes to pass? Like, really, is it a 20% chance? Is it an 80% chance? Like, or how confident do I feel about this outcome? Like, it, it, I think this can happen, but I really don't know. Like trying to like measure those things in, in the way that we predict is really important. And then the other thing with certain kinds of choices that is very important is kind of low probability, but highly catastrophic outcomes. 
So I have a whole riff in the book about the way that the kind of the algorithm that Google's self-driving car project uses in making all these kind of short-term decisions as it's driving around. And one of the things that it does is constantly looking at the situation and saying, here are the various things that could happen given where I am in the road. And it ranks them both in terms of probability, but also in terms of, I think they call it risk magnitude, like how bad would it be if this happened? So there's a high probability if I swerve a little bit to the right here that I will ding the car to the right and scratch, you know, the side of my door. There's a very low probability that if I swerve a little bit to the left, that I will kill a pedestrian in the sidewalk, you know, to my left. And, but that is a huge, has a huge risk magnitude, right? That's a terrible thing. So even if it's very low probability, I'm going to avoid that. And so there, there is a whole other sets of, sets of exercises you can do if you're inclined to do this kind of thing of kind of mapping out, you know, what is, are there any really catastrophic downsides to one of these paths that I should, you know, that are, that are so catastrophic that even if they're low probability, I should avoid them. Well, you talk about, you give the example of, should we send signals out to aliens? Like low probability, but the cat, the, it could be catastrophic if they, they answer. Yeah. Well, that, I, I got, I went down a crazy rabbit hole with that. I wrote a long piece for the Times Magazine about this. This is the question, should we act instead of just listening for signals from outer space, should we, now that we've identified planets that actually are out there that might potentially harbor life, should we be targeting those planets with messages saying, hey, we're here, we're humans, we're on Earth, you know, are you, is anybody, are What's you, up? is anybody living at this address? And there's a lot of people who think we should, and then there are a lot of people who think, oh my God, we're going to get, you know, they're going to immediately like kill us with a death ray of some sort. You know, Elon Musk is very worried about this. Stephen Hawking was very worried about this before he died. And I found that a very interesting kind of choice because one, it deals with the existential threats or risks as we were talking about, but two, it's the ultimate long-term decision because the, the transit time for that information, given the speed of light, in, in some cases we're talking about, you'd make the choice to send the message and the consequences of that choice would not be visible for like 10,000 years or 50,000 years or something like that. So I think it may be the longest term decision that human beings are capable of making. I can't think of another choice where there would be an actual result that would kind of show up 50,000 years later, like, hey, we figured out, you know, whether this turned out well or not. Right. Not my problem. Yeah, not <laughs> like, my problem. Wipe my hands, right? Anyhow, that, that's a whole, there's a longer version of that. It's right. fascinating, kind of kind of the, the astronomy of it and the astrophysics of it all is, uh, is pretty interesting as well. Well, I want to go back to a point you made earlier about one thing we can do to sort of fine tune our decision-making ability. So we can do the mapping where we're trying to see more options than we otherwise thought there were. Then we can do some prediction where we run some scenarios out, maybe do some red teaming, maybe, you know, actually just maybe do an experiment. Like if you're a startup, you maybe just do a little ad player, right? And you can see if people respond to yeah. it. But then, you know, making the decision itself you are you talked a lot about reading novels yeah can actually help us fine tune our ability to make decisions how how can reading you know i'm right now i'm reading what am i reading right now comanche moon uh-huh. um larry mcmurtry's how how can reading comanche moon help me make better decisions well you know it's funny like one, one, this is one of those things where you write a book and you suddenly you know it creates this lens that you look at everything through but one of the things that i that i realized in writing the book is that that so many of the best points in in stories in novels, but also I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of you know in a way the equivalent of the novel in our age, which is you know great long format television shows, you know The Wire and Mad Men and Sopranos and all those shows, is 
the the moments where you really you know are leaning forward and just like being drawn into the narrative is when a character faces a complicated choice and and, and a full spectrum choice that you know the, the the better one of the ways in which we evaluate i think implicitly great narratives is like does it bring in the full range of human experience in the in the choices the characters are forced to make and if it doesn't then it's just kind of superficial and not that interesting if it does it feels like art and so we were for instance again this is, this is a tv not novels but we've just been watching friday night lights the great you know kind of texas football show one of the greatest tv shows of all time and we're watching it with our kids with our teenage kids and it's an amazing show to watch for them because every episode, someone, and in fact, normally often multiple, you know, characters are like wrestling with a hard choice where there's pressure from their peers or the town is doing something or they're trying to stay true to their ethics, but they're challenged because of their situation or this, you know, and it's just, and I, you know, I was in the middle of writing Farsighted as we were doing this. And I was like, oh, this is such a great show because we watch these people and, and often what they end up doing, the, the like, the thing that makes the narrative interesting is that they figure out an original surprising solution to the, to the choice that they were, that, 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 that hard choice that they confronted and seeing somebody make a creative solution that solves the, the, the problem that they're wrestling with is that's the payoff, right? Instead of being like, Oh, you know, it's a chase scene and he escaped from the bad guy. It's like, Oh, you know, the coach figured out a way to keep that player on the team while still managing his relationship with his wife and what, you know, like, that. <laughs> and that's, it's great drama, right? And, and in a novel, I think a novel can do that even in some ways better because it gives you access to the interior life of a character. I talk a lot about Middlemarch, arguably like the greatest novel ever written in the English language, I would say. And you see there's a big choice at the center of it that Dorothea Brooke has to make. And you see her, because Elliot is such a brilliant novelist, you see Dorothea wrestling with this choice and all of its complexity. And I just think what that does is, as I said, kind of at the beginning of the, the, our conversation, you know, we're, when, we, when we see great fiction or narrative like that, the choices that people are making are not themselves our choices, right? We have different issues, presumably. We're not, most of us are not high school football coaches or whatever. But when we run these kind of simulations of other people's lives, and particularly when we can see into the kind of inner monologue that people have when they're making a complicated choice, those simulations just, it's, it's almost like going to the gym, right? It's like an exercise of your mind, like practicing making choices, thinking about all the implications so that we then turn to our own lives. We've had that rehearsal for it. So I think that's, I mean, that's one of the great, Arguments for having stories, I think, in in our lives, having complex stories, is that we get is that we get a, a it's, it gives us a kind of a practice for our own experiences. You use uh, the Osama bin Laden raid that happened a couple of years ago as an example, as a case study of an organization, a large organization, multiple organizations using this process you laid out. I mean, can you highlight some of the things that they did, for example, to map and how they take those mappings to make predictions and then make that decision ultimately? Just the highlight, just a few highlights. Yeah, I wanted to put that story in there because, you know, we tend to celebrate the results of great decisions for understandable reasons. Like in that case, the result of the decision was a, a daring moonlit raid, you know, over Pakistan where they actually do manage to kill the great villain of our time. And so it's understandable why you would celebrate that part of it. But before that set of events happened, something else critically important 
had to happen, which is, is that people had to make the decision of what to do. They actually had to make two decisions. They had to decide, is this mysterious figure that we've identified in this, you know, compound in Pakistan outside of Abbottabad, is that Osama bin Laden? And then once they reached reasonable confidence that they thought that, that it was, what should we do? Like, what should we do about it? Should we bomb it? Should we send people in to get them out? Should we try and keep them alive? You know, a whole range of different things. And that process was like a nine-month process. And it was explicitly considered, and you know, as a process using, as, as you said, a lot of the techniques that I talk about in the book. And we don't talk about that enough, right? That's That was... That was the thing that set up the whole success of the raid is that they had gone through and looked at all the different options and thought about it really carefully. And unlike earlier military decisions like, you know, weapons of mass destruction in the Iraq war or Bay of Pigs or the rescue attempt to the hostages in, in Carter, uh, in the Carter administration, they, they specifically tried to challenge their assumptions. They had a kind of an initial mapping phase where, for instance, they, they had one kind of brainstorming process where they were trying to just like come up with as many possible crazy ways that they could figure out of identifying who this mysterious guy was in the compound. And if you read the list of them and that's kind of reproduced in the book, it's uh, some of them are just incredibly stupid. <laughs> like they're like going to like set up a loudspeaker system to say like, this is the voice of Allah, like leave the compound. <laughs> like, and, you know, like that would have never worked, but they were in that kind of divergent stage where they were trying to just propose ideas to, to get around this mystery, basically to solve this mystery. And then the other thing was, and this is really important in kind of group decisions. They, they went through a number of different exercises to challenge, um, their assumptions and to, and to make sure that they weren't victims of groupthink where everybody gets around the room and people just naturally have a tendency to kind of align with each other. And whatever seems like the most likely explanation, the room kind of gravitates towards that and people get increasingly confident that, that that choice is the right one. And so they were constantly like being asked to challenge their assumptions, to evaluate their, their confidence, all the things that, that we've talked about um, at every step of the process. And I, and I just, I wanted to spend some time with that narrative one, because it, it's a, it's a great story and it creates a little bit of a through line through the book, but it's also like, if you think about the, the, the questions we ask when we elect our leaders or when we're contemplating who should be our leaders in government or in a, in a business or whatever, like you, you know, I watched a lot of the presidential debates. I've watched many, many presidential debates in my life. And I don't remember anyone ever saying as a question, how do you go about making decisions? Like, what's your, what's your method? And if you think about it, like that is the most important part of the job, right? You're going to elect someone who's going to make decisions in governing the country and uh, they better make, they, they better be good at it. If they're bad at making decisions, they shouldn't be running the country. And so, I wanted to kind of focus on that as an example of like leaders that actually did go through these exercises and did use that kind of deliberative process. And, and in a case where there was actually a, a really positive outcome in the sense that the, the goals most Americans, I, I think, would agree were, were realized. Well, Stephen, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? 
Well, I have a, a you know, kind of an old fashioned website at, at stephenberlinjohnson.com, hosted at Medium, but just Stephen Berlin Johnson, like this is my middle name, Berlin, like the city in Germany. And then I'm Stephen B. Johnson at Twitter. And uh, those are those are good places to start. All right. Well, Stephen Johnson, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Stephen Johnson. He's the author of the book, Farsighted, How to Make the Decisions That Matter the Most. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, stephenberlinjohnson.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash farsighted, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIN Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can see all of our podcast archives, over 480 there. And you can find thousands of articles on just about anything, how to make better decisions. We've got articles on that, physical fitness, social skills, personal finances, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McCary reminding you not only to listen Listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.